Hello everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. I am Steve Johnson, and it's good to be with you as always. The title of this episode for Genesis 16 is, Is Anything Too Difficult for the Lord? I'll, <laughs> I'll give you a hint for that. The answer to that question is no. Duh, right? Um, the last time we when we talked about Genesis 15, so and we're kind of doing this chapter by chapter, so now we'll be going on to 16. Um, so while the answer posed in this episode's title is anything too difficult for the Lord, the I mean the answer to that may be obvious, right? But sometimes the answer in our hearts isn't always quite as simple as. Uh, as it might be in our heads. So, to know if you believe anything is too difficult for the Lord in your heart, ask yourself, when is the last time it was that you operated in fear rather than in faith over a particular issue? I mean, personally, I can think of something right off the top of my head right now where my apprehension has prevented me from acting in a way that is uh, most beneficial to my health and self-interest, shall we say, because I, quite frankly, I just don't want to deal with it. <laughs> um, and that's all I will say about that for now because of the personal nature of it. But needless to say, I will be kind of preaching to myself in this podcast just as much as anyone else. And uh, so... I'm not picking on anybody specifically here. If I am, then I'm picking on myself too. If, I, if it feels like I'm pointing a finger at you, rest assured that I'm also pointing a finger back at myself. If that makes you feel any better. So, the title of this episode, though, Is Anything Too Difficult for the Lord, didn't come from my own mind, of course. Any of you who are... Bible students, or even if you don't consider yourself a Bible student, if you're in any way familiar with the Bible, you'll recognize it as a question that God asked Abraham in Genesis. And um, so many times God will ask us the same question. Is anything too difficult for me? Has God ever asked you that question? Whether he has yet or not, I pray that uh, in this study, or that he will use this study, I should say, more accurately, to help us better answer that question the next time he asks it of us. So with that in mind, I, you know, it, I mean, for that matter, I mean, we could ask, is there anything bothering you right now? I mean, I still have a tooth issue I haven't gotten fixed yet. Um, there's sometimes issues with my stomach that I, I have found a way to deal with on my own, uh, where I can continue to live comfortably and I kind of deal with it as I choose to. I'm, as long as it be doesn't become too much of an obstacle for me, I have pretty much decided just to kind of let it run its course whenever it happens. And there's also a couple things going on with my cats that I you know, also have on my mind. So I, uh, I would be thankful to God to see those cleared up sooner rather than later. And those are the only things I'm directly facing right now, although granted, one of them has more to do with my animals more than me. But still, I'm responsible for them, so I guess it kind of does apply to me. But the point is that there are things that are on my mind as I do this right now. And I'm sure many of you listening may have thoughts on your that are weighing on your mind. Or are weighing down your mind as you listen to this. So I encourage all of us, myself included, to take whatever those challenges are to the Lord in prayer. And if, you know, I would ask this too, 
how might your perspective on your problems change if you really believed in your heart that nothing is too hard for God? I mean, we have to remember that faith, I've said this many times, faith is the currency of heaven. Going to God without trust or faith is like going to the mall without money. It just, you know, it doesn't work. I like that uh, saying. That's why I use it so much. Going to God without faith is like going to the mall without money. Or like trying to turn a lamp on when the electricity's off. It just doesn't work. In the book of James, he kind of drives this point home when he says in uh, James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, but when you ask him, meaning when you ask God, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. So that's why I say going to God without faith is like going to the mall without money because then it makes you double-minded. And as another translation says, a double-minded person is unstable in all of their ways. This translation, the New Living Translation, talks about having divided loyalty. Which is also, I guess you could say that's a good description of a person who is divided in their mind about whether they're trusting God and walking in faith or walking in fear and not trusting Him. So to lay the foundation for our study today, let us begin by rereading some passages that we previously have in other studies. Uh, Genesis 12, 1-3, which you can find on my YouTube channel, and Genesis chapter 15, verses 1-6, through 6, which is part of what we studied yesterday. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 say, The Lord had said to Abram, and again, right now I'm reading from the New Living Translation, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And another translation says, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. Another translation says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So as I pointed out in our earlier study, when we were going through Genesis 12, that God, God promised Abram seven different things. God promised Abram that he would make him into a great nation. God promised that he would bless Abram. God said that he would make Abram famous. Abram would be a blessing to others, God said. God said that he would bless those who would bless Abram. God said that he would curse those that treated Abram with contempt. And finally, number seven, he said that all families on earth would be blessed through Abram. But for these seven things to happen, Abram would have to leave his native country, his, relative, his relatives, his father's family, and go to the land that God would show him. Um, I, I heard uh, Steve Dace say this on, a, on an episode of the News and Why It Matters on, uh, I think it was Wednesday night with uh, Sarah Gonzalez. He said, there is no constructive substantive change without some painful experience accompanying it. I'll say that again. There is no constructive or substantive change without some painful experience accompanying it. And remember too that at this point in Abram and Sarai's life, they still had no reason to believe that they would have any descendants, let alone enough to comprise a whole nation, which was basically God's promise in Genesis 12. If we go back to Genesis 11.30, it said that Sarai was unable to become pregnant 
and had no children. So I can imagine them looking at God and going, hey, you know, I don't know if, hey God, I don't know if you're quite familiar with how the whole reproductive process works down here. I mean, I'm not I'm saying, you know, you obviously told us to be fruitful and multiply. So like, you, you know how this works. You started the whole thing. You got the ball rolling and all. But I don't know if maybe you kind of maybe have forgotten that, uh, yeah, uh, we ain't got no we ain't got no kids yet, and I'm getting kind of old, you see, and um, gosh, you know, um, I just don't see how this is gonna work out, and we'll see that attitude as we move into the later chapters here. We go to Genesis uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. It says that sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. But, everybody's got a but. As Jesse Duplantis likes to say, you need to get your butt out the way. <laughs> but Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings? When I don't even have a son. Again, kind of saying in a much more flowery way what I just expressed. Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No. <laughs> it's quite clear. No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. I can see Abram, Abram right now going, yeah, God, you still don't quite get it. See, I'm old. My wife's old. We ain't having no kids. <laughs> you know how long it's been? Well, never mind. I'm going to go there in case there might be children listening. But, um, so, but he didn't say that. This is the key verse. Genesis fifteen six. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. From last time you will remember the importance of this latter passage for understanding the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. I emphasized over and over and over and over again in that last podcast, probably until some of you are sick of it. And I will reiterate it here again one more time just to drive the point home that you will never, 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 never have a deep, personal relationship with God if you don't grasp the concept that you are made righteous because of your faith and not because of your works. Again, you are made righteous because of your faith, not your works. But while I think it's important for us to drive that point home, there's another point that I want to get out of this for this particular podcast. And that is that we need to also take notice of the fact that Abram's humanistic solution to God's divine promise was that Eliezer of Damascus, who was, again, it said here, a servant in Abram's household, would inherit all of his wealth. Now, like I said, at this point in his life, Abram's demonstrating doubt rather than faith. And remember what the book of James said, which we read earlier, the person who comes to God without faith should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. It wasn't until Abraham, or Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham, it wasn't until he exercised faith in God that he was declared righteous and qualified to receive God's promise. Again, going back to something I said earlier, going to God without faith is like going to the mall without money. So, 
This is not the first human response the couple would develop when God didn't move fast enough for their liking. <laughs> you know, Abram says, hey, I've got a servant here that'll be my heir. And we're going to see uh, that Sarai is going to come up with a plan of her own in Genesis 16 here tonight. But God would not be deterred regardless of their human plans. He rejected Abram's solution and stuck with his own. Telling him, God told Abram, that he would have a son of his own that would be Abram's heir. But remember, I just said that this was not the couple's first attempt to help God out and to help him solve this apparent conundrum. So we see in Genesis, uh, well, we see that in Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. In Genesis 16, 1 through 3, it says, that Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. But, again, you got to get your butt out the way. But, she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, <clears throat> Yo, Abe. Well, maybe she didn't call him that, but I'm going to say it that way. So I am. It's my podcast. Yo, Abe. Can't really say honest, Abe, because he had that whole half-truth thing back earlier in Genesis 12. But anyway, yo, Abe, the Lord has prevented me from having children. The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Now, there's a good idea, right, folks? Perhaps I can have children through her. And I love this part. Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. You don't say. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant or slave, and gave her to Abram as a wife. <clears throat> this happened ten years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram's solution, his humanistic solution to God's divine plan, as I said earlier, Abram's solution to Sarai's barrenness was to allow his servant Eliezer to be his heir. God said no. So Sarai's solution to her barrenness was to give her servant Hagar to Abram to sleep with so they could get a child that way. Now you might say, well, why didn't God just block that from happening? Use the, well, gosh, I can't use that term either. So let's just say, why didn't God block that from happening. I'll just say that. I won't uh, say how I was going to say it, but why why didn't he just put the, put the block on this? Why didn't he keep this from happening? Um, you know, at, at some point, just like later on in the Old Testament when the Israelites demand a king, you know, you keep telling God, you know, there was a country song, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Well, sometimes if you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing long enough, God's going to take his hand off and say, okay, have it, just like Burger King, have it your way. Well, that's, uh, he gives you the Burger King solution. You, know, you really want to do this your way? Fine. That's what Romans 1 is all about. We're talking about a Romans 1 judgment. That's what Romans 1 is all about. This whole idea of, fine, you, you guys want to do things your way? I'm going to take my hand off and... You can experience the full consequences of your actions and your behavior and see exactly where it leads to. You don't want me to get involved? You got it. Have it your way. And that's kind of what happens here, I think. So, Abram's solution to Sarai's barrenness was, Hey, I got this servant here, Eliezer. He's going to be my, my uh, heir. And God said no. So Sarai says, hey, Abe, uh, see that pretty girl over there? She's my servant, right? She's my slave, so she pretty much has to do whatever I tell her to do, you know? I got this great idea. Why don't you go have sex with her? Then we can help God out and help him fulfill his promise. And, you know, 
like any good husband, Abram takes one look at this younger servant of his wife and says to Sarai, sounds like the will of God to me, sweetheart. What a great idea. What a great idea the Lord hath given thee. <laughs> I mean, your, your aging wife looks at your aging self and says, hey, I got this, one, this young woman here. Probably attractive, but even if she's just semi-attractive, you know, he's probably not getting a lot of action these days. And so <laughs> she says, "Hey, why don't you got my full permission to to go um, have a good time with my servant?" And 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 it's the will of it's got to be the will of the Lord because you know it's got to be the will of the Lord because he said we're gonna have a child. So surely God is in this. And he says, "You know what, hun?" That spiritual insight you got is top-notch. I'm all in. And so Abram went all in. He went all in and had relations with uh, with uh, Hagar. So <laughs> I'm really trying to be good here in how I describe this. But uh, <laughs> as you can see, I'm having a little bit of trouble. But... Let me try to get back on track here. Can you ever think of a time when you tried to help God out rather than, rather than uh, waiting on Him and trusting in His timing? I'm sure all of us can come up with at least one. and um, A lot of us, or all of us, probably many times when we've rushed ahead of God or tried to change His plan because we didn't see how He would fulfill it. So now let's take a look at the rest of Genesis 16. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, with his wife's permission, and she became pregnant. But, here's another but, remember what Jesse says, gotta get your butt out the way. Well, they got a lot of butts, and apparently they like big butts because there's a lot of them here. And they cannot lie, because they got a lot. They got a lot of butts here, and all their butts get them in trouble. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her. I'm sorry, folks. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarai with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram. I love this. This is all your fault. <laughs> I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. <laughs> and get this part. The Lord will show you who's wrong, you or me. I got, I, like I said, I got to say, I love this. Sarai comes up with this brilliant idea to have her husband sleep with her servant. Then later, when Hagar starts to treat Sarai with contempt, she blames her husband for it, but it was her idea. Now, granted, you know, she didn't hold a gun to his head and force him to acquiesce to her idea, although that would have been kind of hard because guns hadn't been invented yet, but that's not the point, and you know what I mean. The point is it was her idea, and now she's blaming him for it. And not only that, but she also has the nerve to bring the Lord into it telling him to judge between them and decide which one is in the wrong. I mean, geez, it's no wonder that Solomon, you know, later on in, uh, in Proverbs, it's uh, chapter 21, verse 9, and chapter 25, verse 24 in the book of Proverbs, Solomon writes this, It's better to live alone in the corner of an attic than with a quarrelsome wife in a lovely home. I'll read that again. It's better to live alone in the corner of an attic than with a quarrelsome wife in a lovely home. Some translations, I think, say it's better to live on the corner of a rooftop than to live inside a home with a quarrelsome wife. But the point I want to make with this is Solomon meant this so much that he repeated it twice in Proverbs. So, And I, I, I can kind of see where he's coming from here after reading this. But anyway... I'll, uh, I'll leave that alone before I get myself in some more trouble. Anyway, so Abram replied to Sarai, who's blaming him for her idea. Look, he says, 
<laughs> Look. <laughs> Look, she is your servant. So deal with her as you see fit. What a cop-out. <laughs> it's like Abram, you know, I mean, it's not his fault that, I mean, this wasn't his idea. Now, he does bear some responsibility because, again, she didn't hold a gun to his head or a, or a rock or whatever they used to kill people with back then. She didn't hold anything to his head or any, she didn't threaten him, whatever, and say, you know, whatever she she didn't she didn't coerce him in any way he could have said no it was her idea he went along with it and now she's blaming him for it and rather than being a man and taking a stand like he should have done when she first came up with the idea he says look hey you know i'm out you you do with this how you see fit again you know i said what a cop out He's like, it's like uh, Pontius Pilate. Hey, I wash my hands of this. You deal with it. it it'll be on your heads. <laughs> it'll be on your heads, all right. You know? So I feel like what he should have told her is, don't get mad at me. This was your idea. The only fault I have in this is listening to you. <laughs> That's what I think you should say. You know, and, then, and then he should have told her, it wouldn't be right for me to send them away just because you are reaping what you've sown now. But, whether or not you could say to Abram's credit, I guess some people would, he didn't say that. But, then we see the problem of the fact that Sarai began to treat Hagar so harshly that she finally had to run away. It's hard to stay a fan of Sarai when I read this carefully, although I just mentioned in another study not too long ago from Genesis that um, Sarai is never held up as an example for women, to, or excuse me, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is never held up as an example for people to follow, even though she's highly revered, especially in the Catholic Church. But She's never held up as the example to follow, follow, but Sarai is, in spite of this, uh, I would say, um, well, less than impressive moment here that she had. But I'm also glad that the Bible highlights these problems to show that these people in the Bible were just as fallible as we are capable of being. And yet, look how God used people throughout the Bible. So we have, it's a good reminder to us that yes, we can be really screwy and do some really stupid things sometimes. But God is also still on our side and still willing to use us. No matter how we mess things up if we're willing. So I'll try not to stay on the Sarai soapbox too long, but I will add here that I uh, I recently saw one of my friends on Facebook say that the problem with woman is man. She was kind of a play on words. The problem with woman, W-O-M-A-N, is man, the last three letters in the word. And I kind of beg to differ, differ after rereading this account for this study. I mean, I didn't agree with it in the first place, but now I have another biblical example to back up my counterpoint should that discussion ever start up again. But it says here that the angel of the Lord, after Sarai caused her to run away, found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. And the angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's... Uh, he calls her Hagar, Sarai's servant. Where have you come from and where are you going? So Hagar has an identity that she's running away from. And yet, even though she's running away from it, when the angel says, when the angel calls her out by name, he refers to her as this identity that she's still trying to run away from. Hagar, Sarai's servant. You can't run away from who you are. If you try to run away from your problem, guess what? Whenever you get where you're going, 
those problems are still going to be right there waiting on you. The form they take might look different. It might be different. But they're still going to be there. You can't outrun yourself. No matter where you go, there you are. So the angel refers to her as Hagar, Sarai's servant, and says, Where have you come? Where have you come from and where are you going? And she says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress. Don't you know Hagar really wanted to hear that? And get this part, don't just return to her, submit to her authority. Respect her authority, it would say in, uh, <laughs> no, not really, in the uh, South Park translation of the Bible. Respect her, respect her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count, the angel of the Lord said. So Sarai mistreated her servant Hagar. Abram didn't step in to help out. But notice that authority, but notice again, the angel did not refer to her as anything other than what her identity was. And the authority structure still was not broken. So this tells me there's a principle in the Bible that even if somebody isn't doing their part as part of their role, it doesn't negate us from our responsibility to do our part. I've failed in this many times. But yet I can't escape this principle either. If somebody's not doing their part, God will still hold you responsible to do your part even if they never do. The angel also said, You are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man. Pay attention to this part. This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. wonder if that means he'll be a Democrat since their symbol is a donkey. Anyway. <laughs> The Democrats are Ishmaelites. No, I'm just kidding. Um, he, he, meaning this son of yours and the, his descendants, he will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. There are several things to note from this paragraph. First, God was more merciful to Hagar and Ishmael than both Sarai and Abram were. Second, the prophecy about Ishmael is something we still see being lived out to this very day. If you're familiar at all, if have even seen a glimpse of any news headlines regarding the conflicts in the Middle East that have been going on forever, Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations. Ishmael is the father of the Arabs. Just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the patriarchs of the Jewish people. Abraham and Ishmael are the ancestors of the Arab people. That's why nations came from Abraham. The Jews and the Arabs both. Those two ethnic groups both came from Abraham. And spiritually, Christians come from Abram, as we discussed last time about how the true children of Abraham, it says in the New Testament, are those who have faith in Jesus. So spiritually, if you're a Gentile, you're still a child of Abraham and a child of God if you have faith in Christ. But Ishmael, uh, yeah. Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations, whom the angel described as a wild, untamed people and always fighting and being fought with. The Middle East conflict that's been going on, again I'll say this, for thousands of years and still dominates international headlines to this day, can be directly traced back 
to what happened here in Genesis 16. So after that, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. And she also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So this refers to him as an angel of the Lord. She's pretty confident she's talking to an incarnation of God himself, which very well could be. There's reasons for that, and there's, there's a whole theological term for that. Um, uh, the pre-incarnate Jesus or something or some form of God. This says the angel of the Lord uh, could be, you know, she seems to think that, you know, whether, whether she thinks that she's talking directly to God here or whether she's acknowledging that she's talking to God through one of his messengers, which is what an angel is, it literally means a messenger of God, um, then regardless, she knows she's talking to God here. So she says, you are the God who sees me, and also says, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So the well that she was at was named, um, and I'm sorry for any of my Jewish friends who, uh, uh, in case I mispronounced this, Bir Lahai Roy, or, well, I'm, I'm just going to go with that for now, Bir Lahai Roy is the name of that well, which means the well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found, Genesis says, Genesis 16, between Kadesh and Bered. So in Genesis 15, 2, God calls, or Abram calls God Adonai. During the Hellenistic period, the Jews stopped pronouncing God's proper name, which we sometimes translate as Yahweh or Jehovah. It's actually the tetragram the tetragrammaton. I'll get it right in a minute. It's uh, it's the Hebrew letters are yud hey vav hey, or in English we we often spell it with a capital Y H W H, and we've added vowels to it to be able to pronounce it, which is where we get the word Yahweh from. Some of them say some people say Jehovah, in a more traditional sense. Um, I'm pretty sure that Yahweh is closer to it than Jehovah, but that's, you know. But anyway, the point is, is that these Hellenistic Jews thought that it was, God's name was too holy to be uttered, and they feared breaking God's commandment to never misuse his name. So they came up with this and many other rules which, uh, to add to the 613 commandments that God had given them in the Torah. And they came up with these other rules to, to, to do what they called, which was to build a fence around the Torah to avoid breaking God's law. Because it was their breaking of God's law which ultimately led to their judgment and exile. So when Jesus said later on to the religious leaders and the people of Israel, when he would come on the scene, he said that the people's traditions cause God's word to be rendered ineffective. When he said that, I think, you know, what he likely had in mind was this extra fence that the Jews had put around the Torah. It's not that they, they necessarily had the wrong motive. I mean, their motive for putting this fence around the Torah, this proverbial fence that the Jews put around the Torah, was good. It, I mean, it was... I don't know if it was good. Their, their intention was good. Their motive in the beginning was right. But still, things got off track when they started teaching those traditions as being equal in authority to God's word itself. It's no different today than a church that would say that their, uh, their statement of faith or their official church doctrines are equal to the Bible. It's basically the same kind of mistake that the Jews were making at the time and still make to this day when they, uh, to some degree, when they, when they take the oral traditions passed down by the rabbis, which I think are great, a lot of them, and provide a lot of insight into God's word. And, uh, you know, sometimes as Protestants, we go so far, you know, I would say as, as a Protestant myself, 
the Catholic Church went too far in declaring basically that church tradition or church doctrine is equal in authority to God's Word, the Bible. But at the same time, Protestants have gone so far in the other direction to try to avoid that error that we have gone we've gone so far as to basically discount all tradition if if the bible if it's not in the bible then it's not true and if it's not in the bible then we can't read it or listen to it or pay attention to it and it has no value at all for understanding what is actually in the bible and has no value for our historical context or understanding which neither one of those both of those are errors that need to be corrected no church tradition or church history, things like that, or these Jewish uh, historical writings that aren't in the Old Testament, or whatever, all those things may not be equal in authority to God's Word. But can they and should they be used as commentaries and markers to give historical context for how we are best to understand what God wants? I would say yes, we can do that without you know, where I would say this, where a church tr tradition disagrees or when a Jewish tradition disagrees directly with something in the Bible, then the Bible should be given precedence over that. But, again, that doesn't mean we should discount traditions, doctrines, whatever, when trying to help us understand the scriptures. But things got off track, or things do get off track when you try to make those traditions or those extra things equal to the Bible itself, because nothing is equal to God's Word. Jesus himself said that. Nonetheless, Abram refers to God in Genesis 15 too, to get back to my original point before I got off track again. I like those little rabbit trails and side, side detours, so pardon me for that. But um, Abram refers to God in Genesis 15 too with the name Adonai. Orthodox Jews now even consider Adonai too holy to be spoken. First it was just Yahweh or the Tetragrammaton, yud heh vav -Hey, or Y-H-W-H. That was too holy to be spoken. Now a lot of Orthodox Jews will say that Adonai is too holy to be spoken. So like when you see like the word Lord written uh, they will, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, a lot of times they'll leave the o out. They'll just be l-r-d. Or instead of writing the word God, they will write g-d because the name of God is too holy to be spoken or written. And you will, a lot of times, hear Jews use the word Hashem when speaking of God, which simply just means the name. It's a way of saying it's a, it's a way of referring directly to God without using his proper name. Like um, Yahweh or Adonai, they'll say the name or Hashem. Not, you know, I'm not, I'm not sneezing. Uh, it's not Hachoo. It's Hashem. Okay, I'm not being disrespectful. There's just a little joke. I'm sorry if anybody was offended by that. I apologize. That's, that was not intentional. If, if you take it, if you took it offensively, I didn't mean it that way. But anyway, let's continue. Here in uh, Genesis sixteen thirteen, Hagar uses the name El Roy. It's it looks like El Roy, E L space R O I El Roy, but it's actually pronounced Roy, El Roy, which means the God who sees. So, man, that's an important thing here. The God who sees. Well, so what does that tell you about who God is? To me, this is an excellent example of God's mercy and care in times when it seems like no one sees or cares. You know, we've all been there when, you know, you're going through a rough time or some bad things are happening or maybe it's one bad thing after another or maybe it's one bad year after another and you're like, man, is this ever going to end? Does anybody see? Does anybody see what I'm going through? Does anybody care? 
when people, somebody says, are they praying for me? Are they really praying for me? Are they just saying that to make me feel better? Does anybody remember me? <laughs> Does anyone see me? Does anybody care? Well, put yourself in Hagar's shoes, if she would have had any. Can you imagine the despair and abandonment she must have felt? And yet, God never took his eye off of her or her child. And I think that's one of the reasons. I mean, there's probably more reasons than we could count for why anything is in the Bible. Now, I mean, God's word has so many dimensions, we can't even... We could, if we, if we lived as long as Methuselah or longer, we wouldn't even begin to even scratch the surface of all the layers of what's in God's Word. But, my point for right now is, one of the reasons I do think that this story is included is to show us that God, even though, I mean, Hagar is obviously feeling like God doesn't see her, God doesn't care. And she, can you blame her for feeling that way? I mean, she is a slave, basically. It says servant, but that's just a nice way of saying it. Slave. She is Sarai's slave. She's ordered to go have sex with her mistress's husband. Her husband goes along with it. Then she gets blamed for the fallout. And gets mistreated so bad she's got to run away. A pregnant woman running away from her mistress who she could not disobey because she's being blamed for something that her mistress told her to do. And she's you know, she's out there in the desert or out there out there just she's by a well and she's gonna be thinking God Hello, anybody Anybody paying attention to me? Does anybody care? Does anybody see me? So then when the angel of the Lord appears and gives her this promise, he, tell, first, he tells her again something she probably didn't want to hear. I want you to go back. And I want you to submit to your mistress. And you're like, oh, man, really? Really? I mean, look what they did. But, you know, again, that authority structure, God's serious about authority and everything being done in its proper order. And so he tells her to go back. And submit to Sarai, even though Sarai didn't deserve that. But he's got an authority structure in place for a reason. So he tells her to go back. And, but yet, Hagar's comforted. And she says, you are the God who sees me. And I think that's why it's here. One of the reasons, one of the reasons why I think it's here. So we can be reminded when we read this that God does see. God does care. When it seems like he doesn't. When it seems like he's just letting all sorts of terrible things happen. And he's not there and he doesn't care. Remember, Hagar. God does care. You put your name in Hagar's place. God still cares about you. God never took his eye off of her or her child. Even though her child was conceived outside of his will. It was, Ishmael was conceived outside of God's will. God promised Abram and Sarai a son. He never told Abram to go have relations with Sarai. Or not Sarai. He never, pardon me. Yeah, it's his wife. He, you know, you can't have a, Sarai wasn't the one with the virgin birth. Pardon uh, that was my mistake. God never told Abram to go have relations, sexual relations with Hagar. That was all Sarai's idea that Abram went along with. They were both guilty. Hagar, being a servant or a slave, was really the only one that you could almost absolve of guilt because she didn't really have a choice. I mean, it wasn't like physical, forcible rape, but, I mean, she really had no rights or choice. She's the innocent party here. She's literally a victim here of this... this ill-conceived attempt at helping God out to fulfill his plan.
So this child, Ishmael, was conceived outside of the will of God. Yet God still loved and had a plan for Ishmael and the descendants that would eventually come from him. And if you've made a mess out of things and feel like you've ruined your life too much for God to ever use you, I felt like that sometimes, but get that thought out of your mind right now, no matter who you are. God is truly the master of making lemonade out of lemons. Don't rob him. Don't rob God of the opportunity of doing that in your life if you need it. To take your lemons and make lemonade out of them. So the end of chapter 16 in Genesis says, Hagar gave Abram a son and Abram named him Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. But, this is my but, but God was not yet done with Abram and Sarai's family tree, as we will see in Genesis, Genesis, or excuse me, Genesis subsequent chapters. But um, I was going to try to do 16 through 18. I was going to try to do three chapters tonight. But we're already at the 51-minute mark of this podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and call it a night with this one. So uh, thank you all very much for your time tonight. And I pray that this podcast has been a blessing to you. I look forward to being back with you all again very soon. Um, at the end of each podcast, or, well, last night at least, I took the time to go through all of my uh, social media things so that uh, you could follow me. Just to, for the sake of saving some time tonight, if you are interested in uh, following me on social media, my email address is wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. You can reach me there if you if you want the links to my uh, where you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter and social media and MeWe and all that good stuff. Let me know and I will um, I will send those to you. But until next time, I uh, hope you guys have a blessed night. I look forward to being back with you again very soon. God bless you all, and have a wonderful night.